Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Israel Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. I'm honored to present to you part two of my dialogue with former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert. We are discussing his new memoir published by Brookings Institution Press. And today we will focus on aspects of his life and political career unrelated to his tenure as prime minister. Uh, Mr. Ulmer, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. I'm, in, I'm delighted, Ari. Thank, Thank you. you. Can you comment on your father's role in fundraising for the Irgun? What role did he play and what impact did this have on you as his son? Well, when uh, my father was... Uh, uh, raising funds for the goon, I was a baby. Mm-hmm. He was asked by uh, then the commander of the goon, uh, Menachem Begin, the uh, late uh, prime minister of Israel mm-hmm. at that time, uh, before the establishment of the state of Israel, he was the commander of the goon, and uh, he uh, knew my father and he knew the background of my father in China. Uh, which at that time had a relatively large uh, Jewish community in uh, three major cities, in uh, Shanghai, in Tianjin, and in Harbin, where my father originally came from. So uh, he asked my father uh, to go there, uh, which at that time, considering all the circumstances, uh, was not a a simple uh, uh, thing to do. Uh, My father was... uh, sailing to France, where from he went to America, uh, to the East Coast, where from the East Coast he uh, went to uh, San Francisco. There he met, uh, uh, for the last time, uh, his uh, older brother who lived in San Francisco. And from San Francisco, he was sailing to uh, China. Uh, And in China, uh, he had meetings in uh, these three major Jewish centers. Uh, The purpose of the uh, uh, fundraising at that time was to purchase weapons, which the Gun wanted uh, to buy in Europe, uh, where from it was supposed to arrive in Israel and to uh, help the uh, Israeli military that was just building up in order to uh, uh, be ready for the uh, uh, possible um, military confrontation with the Arab countries, which threatened the uh, state of Israel. Uh, If the state of Israel will be proclaimed, uh, there will be a military attack by the uh, Arab countries. And uh, so uh, obviously uh, these were very emotional meetings. Uh, Many of the uh, Jews in uh, China at that time uh, knew my father from his uh, uh, young age. 
when he grew up in uh, China and uh, knew his family. And uh, my father was very emotional in his uh, appeal uh, to the Jews. And uh, I understood much later that he raised a lot of money. And uh, sometimes uh, at the meetings, uh, the uh, women just took off from their ears, the earrings or any jewelry that they had, and they gave it to him, you know, like they gave everything they had. Uh, and uh, with uh, all of this uh, tr treasure, uh, the, uh, my father went back uh, through America to Europe. And in Paris, he met uh, the uh, two uh, major commanders of the Yagun, who happened to have been uh, uh, part of the Beitar youth movement that my father was the leader of in Harbin in China. One was uh, um, the uh, future commander of the Altalena boat, uh, Eliyahu Lankin, and the other was Mr. German, who was the, uh, uh, in charge of purchasing the weapons for the, um, the Altalena boat. Uh, later, uh, there was a, a dramatic uh, event about Altalena because Ben Gurion, who was the uh, becoming the uh, uh, national leader of uh, Israel, thought that Menachem Begin was actually preparing a separate military organization, which the Yagun was up until then, in order to uh, try and take over the leadership in the state of Israel which um, uh, was denied by uh, the uh, Irgun, but in any event, when the boat came with the weapons, uh, weapons were not bought only with the uh, uh, funds that my father raised, but this, this had a very significant contribution to the amount that could be uh, bought at that time in Europe. Now, when the boat arrived in the, uh, um, uh, in the, uh, near the beach of Tel Aviv, it was attacked by the uh, artillery of the uh, uh, government, of the government to be uh, uh, ordered by uh, Ben-Gurion and 23 of the passengers that were on the boat were killed. And uh, this uh, uh, left uh, a traumatic impact uh, on the uh, uh, life of uh, all those that survived and of course of many, many um, uh, Israelis, including of course the Irgun uh, members, uh, because uh, it was uh, an attack that killed and many of the 23 that uh, were killed were survivors of the Holocaust. It was a terrible event. Uh, and uh, it took uh, some 35 years until there was a, a special commission of inquiry that uh, was established by the government when Benjamin Begin was the prime minister of Israel after so many years, which concluded explicitly that there was no attempt uh, of a coup by the Irgun against the, uh, uh, the uh, government uh, that was in creation at that time. And uh, it somehow removed some of the, uh, of the uh, emotions which accompanied, uh, which, which characterized the relations between these two camps in the Israeli public opinion. 
uh, of course, it, uh, it was a very significant event, very traumatic event, which was discussed many times at home uh, amongst us. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, there was so much, such a great challenge to uh, first fight the uh, Arab countries which were uh, encircling Israel from all sides, from the south and from the north and from the center. And there was no time to, uh, the time to dwell on the uh, events that uh, preceded the uh, uh, Altalena bombing. And uh, afterwards, uh, you know, we had to build a country. We didn't have time to uh, engage in uh, internal uh, conflicts. And also, one of the greatest contributions of Menachem Begin to the nature of the State of Israel was when he uh, announced before and also particularly after Altalena, there will not be a civil war between Jews uh, in the State of Israel. So that has helped change the atmosphere uh, and also, I think, prove in the most uh, explicit manner that uh, Menachem Begin never had any intentions of uh, uh, trying a coup d'etat against the, uh, what appeared to have been at that time, although it was before the elections even, that there was uh, any attempt by him uh, to uh, violate the uh, basic principles of uh, uh, free will and, uh, and, and democracy. Uh, in Israel. What does Vladimir Jabotinsky mean to you? Are there any of his writings that had an impact and influence on you personally? Well, uh, obviously, uh, you know, we all grew up. I was, uh, I, I grew up in a, a, a small neighborhood uh, near where I was originally born, which I, I think we talked about in our previous yes. meeting. Uh, which was called Nachalat Jabotinsky. Yes. It was named after Jabotinsky. Jabotinsky was the godfather, the yes. ideological, spiritual, uh, political godfather of the entire revisionist movement, which uh, also inspired the uh, Irgun and uh, which uh, was all, always uh, the, uh, the uh, focus of the uh, political uh, movement of Herut, which was established by Menachem Begin uh, for the uh, uh, political process in Israel in 1948. So uh, we had all the writings of Jabotinsky at home. In every home, in every house in this neighborhood where we lived, they always, uh, in the uh, living room, there was a big uh, photo of Jabotinsky and of course all his writings and uh, we didn't have any choice. We had to uh, read all of his books. And uh, his, uh, uh, he was uh, adopted by Herut party to be their uh, spiritual leader. But the truth is that many of his views, the original views of Jabotinsky were not necessarily what was later uh, adopted by uh, the Hrut movement, but he still was always the godfather of the uh, political movement. Uh, for instance, he, I think he was a much more liberal person than uh, Menachem Begin was and that the Hrut party at that time was. And uh, he uh, realized uh, uh, in his writings uh, 
that when the state of Israel will be established, there will be many uh, Arabs living in Israel. And he even talked about a possible uh, political uh, setup where the prime minister will be Jewish, the deputy prime minister will be an Arab, and Jews and Arabs will live together happily. It didn't quite materialize to this effect, it is certainly at the beginning of the state of Israel because of the impact of the conflict between us and the Arab countries. And uh, at a time when we had uh, a large Arab population as part of the state of Israel. But I think that uh, after so many years on these days, we can say that there is a change and that uh, for the first time in the history of our country, an Islamic Arabic uh, party, uh, relatively radical in many of its attitudes, is uh, now part of the coalition of the Israeli uh, parliament, which is, uh, I think, uh, very significant and maybe a turning point in the internal domestic relations between Jews and Arabs, which reflects more what Jabotinsky thought when he was writing uh, his uh, uh, books about the uh, what will be the nature of the future uh, state of Israel. Which is your favorite essay by Jabotinsky? Is there one that stands out to you? Well, uh, the, uh, maybe the, uh, the famous article in which he talked about the metal wall, as yes. he called it. The metal wall, which meant that uh, the most the, the top priority that we will have to uh, address ourselves to will be the creation of a very strong defensive system that will make sure that Israel will not be, the state of Israel that will be created will be uh, protected against any possible uh, attack by uh, Arab countries that will not acquiesce with the creation of the state of Israel. And this was the uh, guiding uh, principle that has characterized not just our part of the politics in Israel, but I think it was a consensus that the most important thing that we need to do is to build up a strong defensive system to make sure that no more will Jews be uh, vulnerable uh, in, the, in, in, in the, the context of the relations uh, between us and the uh, enemies that at that time proclaimed in the most uh, outrageous way that their ultimate goal is to liquidate the state of Israel. In his book, The Revolt, uh, Menachem Begin writes at length about his fears of civil war in the Yishuv and in Israel. He writes, history teaches us that on the heels of most wars of liberation, bloody civil strife has invariably broken out. And in some respects, the fall of regime resembles an earthquake for an earthquake, even after it has apparently spent itself is often succeeded by a chain of further subterranean upheavals. It cannot be said that our revolt did not create all the prerequisites for an internal clash, on the contrary, the internal clash seem much more inevitable here than in many other revolts. What's your perspective on this statement by Jabotinsky? And I'm curious to ask you, as mayor of Jerusalem and as prime minister, how did you deal with extremism in Israeli society? 
Well, when uh, um, I was uh, mayor of Jerusalem, uh, at that time, the, uh, the, uh, the most uh, dramatic uh, event, or the series of events which uh, took place was the second intifada in which uh, uh, there were uh, maybe more than 100 suicidal attacks against innocent Israeli civilians, Jewish civilians, mostly in Jerusalem, partly in other parts of the country, which caused uh, many, many uh, victims. And, uh, and uh, it was very traumatic, very hard to deal with. And I had to deal with it, particularly because of the, uh, my responsibility as uh, the mayor, which it's very interesting, but in, in those days, at least, the mayor was perceived to be not just a mayor, an executive, but like the father of the city, the father of the citizens, the one who is more directly even than the government is responsible for their lives because he was the immediate address. The government is high up, mayor is, he lives in our streets and he walks in our streets and we can see him a lot and so on. Uh, and uh, as a result of this, there was also uh, a trend amongst uh, certain Jewish groups for um, revenge against Arabs, and uh, which I had to battle with in a very uh, strong and determined manner. Uh, I uh, thought that when the Jews were rioting in certain parts of the city, particularly after these attacks, and you know when bodies of uh, citizens were torn apart. In, in, in the coffee houses, in the uh, entrance to the schools, uh, in the streets, in, in stores in the city, and so on and so forth. It was very, very uh, challenging to uh, deal with these rioters and to try and contain the reaction into a more normal, democratic manner of discontent and to prevent any violence from within these groups. And I think we were quite successful in doing it. And uh, then I was prime minister, some of the uh, hatred or, or the, uh, at least the uh, protest was against me, because at that time, what I was trying to do is to uh, establish a credible process of negotiations with the Palestinians. And uh, it was in, uh, in contradiction to uh, the um, opinion of quite a few Israelis that uh, were against the uh, proposed two-state solution that I advocated uh, strongly. And uh, so there were sometimes uh, demonstrations and riots and uh, extreme expressions. And uh, certain groups were trying to, uh, try to bring me down by rioting, by demonstrating uh, in different parts of the country. But, um, I dealt with it in a, in a firm manner, but in a tolerant way. I, I wouldn't uh, use violence against uh, rioters, but I'd rather, you know, stop them in a way that they will not cause uh, any uh, further damage uh, to the internal uh, relations within our society and also to the uh, reputation and the nature of what Israel wanted to, to be seen as uh, inside and outside of Israel. Do you have a 
particular philosophy of decision making? Did you make decisions in a different way, in a different manner as prime minister than you did as mayor? Can you tell us about your decision making style and did it evolve over time? Well, you know, this is something that I'm frequently asked about because uh, this is uh, a point of interest for many who try to understand the dynamics of how you govern. When you are mayor, when you are prime minister, when you are a minister, when you are in a position where you are the last to take the decision, you know that it was famous that uh, uh, when Truman was president in America, he had this slogan that uh, he repeated, and which characterized him: "The box stops here," uh, which means you are the last guy to take a decision. You have to take a decision now. Early enough, I, I say to myself that uh, when there is an issue and you have to deal with an issue you have three options to take a decision to one direction to take it to the opposite direction or not to take a decision each of the three will leave a certain part of the uh, constituents or the population of your critiques of the uh, people discontent if you take a decision on one direction the others that support the other direction will be against it and will criticize you if you do the opposite, then the others will be against you. If you don't take any decision, maybe more will be against you. So I, I, I knew, I felt, I mean, this was part of my nature, that you have to take a decision because no matter what you do, there will be some that will be unhappy about it and that will criticize you. You can't escape criticism. You can't escape discontent. You can't escape those who will uh, demonstrate against you, or write against you, or speak against you, will move motions in the, the parliament against your government. So relax and focus on what you think is the right thing to do and just do it. And don't compromise yourself because of the fear of what may be the reaction. Now, uh, people are different, you know, uh, personality. There are many that I know, including in politics, which is very interesting, that uh, somehow they, they reach a position where they have to take decisions, but by their nature, it's very hard for them. It's not that hard for me. It's a matter of personality. I was always striving to reach the point where I have to take the decision. And therefore, the style of my uh, management, so to say, was uh, whenever there was a consultation on every matter, minor or major, uh, municipal or national. I always used to uh, assemble a group of people that were relevant to uh, the decision-making that I had to uh, make at that time. And I used to say, uh, listen, let's be very short and concise. Don't tell me the history. Don't tell me this is not a symposium. We have to take a decision. Tell me everything that is relevant to the decision that they have to make. And in almost, I don't remember that there was a meeting or a consultation, a cabinet meeting or in the uh, city hall of the executive committee that uh, I was uh, leading that 
it didn't end up with a clear cut uh, instructions of what needs to be done as a result of this discussion. In most cases, of course, the general direction I knew in advance and I asked my staff to prepare the resolutions uh, and through the uh, discussion sometimes when I heard people uh, comments and uh, it turned out that sometimes uh, comments were relevant and significant and required a, a, a adaptation or a fine tuning of a decision. We did it while we were sitting and my staff was, uh, you know, uh, rephrasing uh, certain things. But at the end of the meeting, it was clear to everyone, A, what is the decision? B, what needs to be done? And C, who needs to do what? And this was my style. So therefore, I think that uh, the, the, this manner allowed me uh, to make these uh, um, uh, things more effective. I, I seldom would uh, a meeting last more than an hour, an hour and a half at the most, even on the most critical and important matters. And, and uh, you know, we focused on what needs to be done. I wouldn't allow anyone to tell stories when uh, what I needed is a clear cut view of what a certain person think in relation to the subject that was on the agenda. And, uh, you know, if someone was speaking, who, no matter who he was, he was a deputy in the city hall or a senior minister in the cabinet, I would say, okay, I understood, let's move forward. And I will uh, summarize this decision concluded by uh, spelling out explicitly what the decision is and what needs to be done. And uh, sometimes, you know, in the cabinet, people say, well, but this is not a one-man show. I mean, you have a cabinet, so you have to vote. It's true, but uh, in most cases, when you are the leader and you are in charge and you have a very firm and clear-cut uh, direction that you want to lead, you make uh, the people vote for what you want. Can you explain your positions on the... Camp David agreements between Egypt and Israel. When you were a member of Knesset, you voted against the accords, but you then apologized to Menachem Begin for this vote. Well, this was a two, a, a, a two, uh, when you were two in process. Yes. Uh, how, how did your position evolve on well, the Camp originally, David agreements? I was, originally, I was against the, the original Camp David agreement. The original Camp David agreement, which was signed in September of uh, uh, 1978. Uh, it turned out, by the way, strangely, as it happens sometimes, that when the announcement was made in Washington in September, that the Prime Minister and the President Sadat and the President of the United States, Jimmy Carter at that time, signed the agreement in initials because it had to be approved by the respective parliaments, the Egyptian parliament, the Israeli parliament. So it was signed in initials and it had then to be uh, still, uh, you know, uh, analyzed and, and rephrased in, in details. I was in London and the Israeli ambassador in London at the time 
uh, called me in the morning and he said, uh, he knew that I was in town and he said, you know, there is an agreement, the agreement was signed and Prime Minister Begin on his way back to Israel will stop in London. And I have to be at the airport uh, to receive him because uh, at that time, uh, uh, the uh, British Prime Minister, uh, Menachem Begin was supposed to meet the British Prime Minister and uh, to brief him on, a, he wanted to brief him on the uh, agreement that was signed. So the ambassador offered me to come with him. And I came with him to the airport and we stood at the entrance to the plane, you know, on the, uh, uh, in Heathrow Airport, and together with the Prime Minister of Great Britain, waiting for Menachem Begin to pull out from the uh, plane. And when Menachem Begin saw me suddenly in this line, which he didn't expect, and of course he knew me very well, I was his member of parliament, so when he, after shaking hands with the Prime Minister of Great Britain, he uh, came to me and uh, he hugged me and he said, Ehud, my son, we brought peace to our people. And then the Prime Minister, and then Begin offered me, he said, why won't you join me in the <laughs> meeting with the Prime Minister, which was unexpected. And the British Prime Minister asked me, uh, sir, uh, will you support the Prime Minister? And I said, well, we will hear all the details. You know, <laughs> I didn't commit myself. Turned out that it was very hard for me to swallow what was then an essential part of the original agreement that Israel will pull out, will dismantle all the settlements which were built in Sinai. And Sinai was never a, a sacred place for Israel or a sacred place for the uh, Egyptians. Uh, but still, you know, as someone that was born in a settlement, someone that was subject to all the indoctrination that Menachem Begin made for years and years and years, that we will never dismantle any settlement that we build, uh, I found it very difficult to accept his uh, concession on this issue at that time. So uh, I told him uh, before, uh, and every one of the members of parliament was asked to speak at the general debate before the vote. So before I made my speech, I, I uh, asked to see the prime minister and uh, I told him, uh, Mr. Begin, I'm going to vote against. And he was very, very upset. And he said to me, Ehud, my son, you will be the conscientious uh, person and I'll be the one that sells the land of Israel. Is that what you want? And uh, we uh, talked for more, maybe 45 minutes about it. But finally, I voted against it. Uh, it never really uh, uh, influenced the uh, good relations which I had with the prime minister because he respected the fact that I had the guts to come and to share with him what I'm going to do. I didn't hide from anything. Subsequently, when the final agreement was signed, which was just the agreement between the peace agreement between Israel and Egypt, I saw no reason to vote against because it was a done deal anyway. So I, I voted in its favor. Subsequently, of course, I realized that Menachem Begin was right in the first place. And I felt that uh, I had to uh, uh, recognize this and to do it in front of him. It took a few years because in the meantime, many things changed and so on. And Menachem Begin was retired, but I, came to visit him and I said to him, Prime Minister, I voted against the original agreement in Camp David, 
And I think that I was wrong and you were right. And I want to apologize to you. You showed great leadership. And I, I, I didn't comprehend at that time the significance and the importance of what you did. And I also made public statements about it. And I write it in my book, I think, that I apologized because I think it was very important that person in a public position will have the courage and the integrity to admit in his own mistakes. I think that there is a better chance that when you are in a public position and you want to have the trust of the people that you will be able to say sometimes to your constituents, to the public, hey, I was wrong there, but I know that I was wrong and I'm sorry for being wrong and I've learned something from it and I know how to address myself to the issues in a different way now that I recognize my mistakes. And that's what I did. How do you remember the relationship between Prime Minister Begin and Defense Minister Sharon? You write in the book that, in your perspective, Sharon did not deceive Begin over the conduct of the Lebanon war. Why yeah. did you feel this way? I felt this way because I, I, at that time I was not only a member of the Foreign Relations and Defense Committee of Parliament, but I was a member of the Select Subcommittee, which was responsible directly for Lebanon. So I was privy to all the information and I participated in many meetings and I was also uh, going with the uh, subcommittee to, to Lebanon. And, uh, but there was a, a one uh, very unique event which uh, uh, I uh, took part in, I was involved in, which convinced me uh, that uh, Menachem Begin was not deceived by Sharon. Uh, while the war was still taking place and the Israeli forces still didn't cross the line that was originally promised uh, that we will not cross the 40 kilometers line, uh, but we were on the way uh, to, uh, uh, to the uh, highway between Syria and Lebanon, which was the target that uh, Sharon set for being able to control the terrorist uh, activities of the uh, PLO at that time. I remember, number one, that Sharon in a meeting of the uh, Foreign Relations Committee said explicitly, this is where we are going to. And when someone asked him, I think Rabin, who was a member of that committee with me and Mr. Perez, they asked him, but we are far away and there is going to be a ceasefire tomorrow. So he says, yes, the nature of ceasefires is that they are broken. Uh, and and when this ceasefire will be broken, we'll move forward to the highway. So number one, he didn't hide what was his uh, strategy. Number two, while it was taking place and the war was taking place and we were trying to move forward, I got a telephone call from a soldier that was pulled out from the front line because he had a son born and, and, he, and uh, he was uh, taken to see his uh, wife uh, and the newly born baby before he went back to the battle. And he called me and he said, listen, something is wrong going on here. Uh, we are fighting. I didn't know him, he just identified himself and he knew who I was. So he said, maybe I'll be able to check it. He said, there is something very strange. 
in the radio and in the uh, announcements, we hear all the time that the other side is, uh, is uh, violating the ceasefire understanding. And on the other end, we are giving orders to move forward. So, I mean, maybe uh, the uh, military uh, command is doing things which are not in line with the government position. I, I urge you on behalf of my uh, comrades in battle to put it directly to the prime minister and check with him whether he knows that actually we are not stopping in the 40 kilometers line, but we are moving forward into the highway between Syria and Lebanon. Next morning, eight o'clock in the morning, I was at the prime minister's office and I wanted to see him. And I said to him, Mr. Begin, this is what a soldier called me and said to me. I mean, what, what's going on? So I said, Eud, my son, as he used to address to me, he said, Eud, my son, what do you expect? Do you expect that we'll make an announcement of what our uh, strategy is? Uh, he said, I said, but the soldiers are perplexed. They don't know, they are confused. He said, they will understand, but this is what we have to do. We don't have to announce it, we just have to do it. So I put it to Menachem Begin, I talked to him, I told him, listen, uh, all the time we are talking about 40 kilometers, but we are moving far further uh, away from these 40 kilometers. And this is something that uh, uh, the army is doing. And he said, yes, I know, and I'm aware of it. So uh, how could he be deceived? Did the memory of the first Lebanon war factor into your mind when you led Israel during the second Lebanon war? Yes, in a, in a way, in a way, yes, of course. In the first, immediately when, when it you know, erupted, I say to my generals, we are not going to enter Lebanon in order to stay there. We are, we are going to fight the terrorists and the Hezbollah in order to stop them shooting at the uh, Israeli settlements just across the border. And this was particularly after Israel has withdrawn already from every inch of a Lebanese territory. So we were really, the borderline was the line that was drawn by the uh, United Nations Security Council Resolution 425. And there was not the territory that we occupied and still they were attacking Israeli civilians. And therefore we had to, in defense, in an act of self-defense, we had to uh, uh, retaliate in order to stop the uh, uh, Hezbollah from doing it. But I said, I have no intention of getting into the mud of Lebanon again. I mean, it's been enough for 18 years to be there. What we need to do now is just to make sure that there will be such a deterrence that they will never try again to shoot us. And I have to say that uh, 15, more than 15 years passed since the ceasefire was declared in the, after the second Lebanese war, and there was not one bullet shot by Hezbollah to our side of the border, which means that the deterrence that did not exist at the beginning of the second Lebanese war has been created as a result of the enormous devastation that they suffered in that war. How did it feel to you to observe Prime Minister Menachem Begin suffering from depression? How did Begin's depression impact you personally? I'm referring to the depression that he experienced in 1983 that led him to... Um, I, I will never forget the uh, evening uh, following the uh, announcement of Menachem Begin that he retires. 
and uh, a few members that were relatively close to him, a couple of ministers, and I was with them. We went to uh, the Balfour residence of the prime minister and we sat with Menachem Begin and he was, he was really depressed. He hardly talked and he said, I can't, I just can't, I can't. It was very, very depressing, very, very emotional, uh, very hard for people like me that grew up all their lives with unlimited admiration for the personality, for, for the leadership, for the, uh, the, uh, the, the purity of mind which has been Menachem Begin, to see him in that situation. And I understood that it's an end of an era for not just on a personal basis, but for us as a state. Can you comment on the relationship you had with Ezer Weitzman? What was your relationship I, like with him? I loved him. How can one not? Yes. Uh, he was he was he was charismatic. He was flamboyant. He was different. He was very very Israeli, but but uh, he was not arrogant. He was flamboyant. Yes. He was he was dynamic. He was energetic. He is the, the guy that has built the Israeli Air Force into what it became. And I think the best Air Force in the world. He has made the Israeli Air Force such an enormously powerful uh, arm of the Israeli defense system, powerful than any other section of the Israeli military. And, and he was friendly and he was direct. And uh, you can chat with him like a friend. He one day, when I was already a member of the Knesset, I think in my third term, uh, he came to me and he said, you know, I checked and I found out that when you were serving in the army, you didn't uh, pass, uh, you didn't do the uh, officer's training course. I want you to do it now. I said, Azer, I'm a member of parliament. Members of parliament do not serve in the army. It's forbidden. He said, I don't care. I want you to serve. I want you to go to, a, to an officer's training course in the army, which is six years, six weeks. I'm sorry, six months. <laughs> anyway, I did it. I did it. I did it. And uh, I insisted that I'll do it with, uh, not with reserve soldiers, which are always elderly. I was already 35 and I insisted that the only uh, uh, condition I had to participate, which I didn't have to, you know, I, no one could force me, no one could uh, uh, command me to do it. I said, I'll do it only if I'm doing it with uh, junior uh, uh, soldiers that are serving in the compulsory service, 18 and 19 years old guys. And that's what I did. I was the grandfather of this uh, platoon in which I took part in the uh, officer's training course. Uh, and uh, Weizmann liked it very much. <laughs> there was only one event that there was a no confidence motion and the, the uh, balance was very tight. And there was a fear that we may lose this vote. I was in the army, so I was not in the Knesset. So the whip of the party said to the prime minister, listen, Olmert is missing. We need him for the vote. 
So the prime minister called the chief of staff of the Israeli army at that time, General uh, Eitan, Aful Eitan, and he said to him, I need Olmert for the vote in the Knesset uh, tomorrow afternoon. So the chief of staff called the, the uh, general was commander of the training of the officers training base, which consisted of many more platoons than just mine. And he said to him, get me Olmert, live or dead, immediately. <laughs> so wow. the commander of the general was quite scared. He sent his, uh, his uh, vehicles with a couple of uh, sergeant at arms and they, uh, and they found me somewhere in the desert. And they said, you need to go uh, to the bases where from I was driven to the uh, Knesset. I came with the uh, army uniform. I voted in favor of the government and went back immediately to the course. Can you comment on the relationship between yourself and member of Knesset Shmuel Tamir? Why was there friction in your relationship? Can you comment on your memories of him? Uh, yeah, Shmuel Tamir was one of the most brilliant and, and talented uh, uh, public figures in Israel. He was an outstanding litigator. And he took part in some of the most uh, dramatic legal uh, events in the history of the state of Israel in the uh, early years of the country, particularly in the famous uh, Kastner trial, which was uh, part of which exposed, which unfolded many uh, events which took place during the Second World War when uh, the uh, Israeli leadership. Uh, was uh, supposed to make every possible effort to try and save Jews, if it could, in, in Europe. And, and uh, Tamir accused Ben-Gurion uh, in this trial that he didn't do enough and that his messenger the, to Europe to negotiate with Eichmann, a deal that for 10,000 uh, uh, vehicles that will be provided to the German army uh, a, a million Jews will be released from the camps. Uh, so th th this was a, a one of the most dramatic uh, trials in the history of the state of Israel. And Shmuel Tamir was the uh, litigator. Uh, subsequently, Ben Hecht, the famous screenwriter and uh, uh, scriptwriter uh, in America, wrote this famous book, Perfidy, about this whole uh, set of events. And uh, I was very impressed by Tamir and I, uh, I uh, met with him and I, I wanted to help him in the Harut party where he was a member. But subsequently, when I was ultimately elected to the Knesset as part of Likud, and he was there also, he was very, very, uh, very, very uh, upset about my political initiatives at that time, and he thought that uh, I had to be uh, more obedient to his expectations and his demands, uh, which I, were not always uh, in line with what I thought that we needed to, to, to do, and that has separated us. How was Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir's leadership style different from Begin's? Can different you from anyone. Different from anyone. Can Shamir you comment was, on your memories of him? Shamir, Shamir. Was, uh, Shamir was one of the commanders of uh, the Stern Gang, famous Stern Gang, which was a more radical group than the Yagun. 
after the creation of the state of Israel, he was, uh, he was acquitted to Mossad, which was quite dramatic because he was on the opposite, the most extreme opposite on the right-hand side to Ben-Gurion. And Ben-Gurion approved of his uh, recruitment to Mossad and he became one of the most important commanders of Mossad. He was stationed in Europe. Now Shamir was the strongest personality I've ever met in my life. He was made not of steel, of platinum. No one could squeeze him, no one could threaten him. He was, he was a very strong character. And he didn't believe in making peace with uh, Arafat, which by the way, I didn't believe either. I didn't think that Arafat ever wanted to make peace. So he was under pressure by the Americans and by his own uh, opposition and by some of us to be a little bit milder and, uh, and uh, more moderate in his attitudes, but uh, he didn't change his, uh, his uh, basic positions. Uh, but he was very modest, very humble. He, and he was a very strong person. I think I tell this story, I don't know if uh, you crossed it in, in the book where I was, he asked me, we were very close. I, I advised him on different matters and he made me a minister first time in 1988. And I, even before I was a minister, he used to ask me sometimes when uh, foreign uh, officials and leaders came to visit Israel, he asked me to be in the room with him. And in one occasion, uh, we were sitting in the room with the Secretary of State, James Baker, and the American ambassador, uh, Thomas Pickering, and uh, I was there, and there were a couple of others from the Shamir side. And, uh, and uh, James Baker was complaining to uh, Shamir that every time he comes to Israel, Sharon is building a new settlement and we are pissed off with it and it has to be stopped. And the president and myself will not allow it to continue and he banged on the table. So Shamir put his head close to the face of James Baker and he said to him, you dare not, dare not speak like this to the prime minister of the state of Israel and the leader of the Jewish people, you understand me? And James Baker was stunned and he looked at him and he said, Prime Minister, I apologize. And from then on, their relations became very, very good. And years later, I was very friendly with James Baker. So after he retired and Shamir retired, whenever he came to Israel, we used to have lunch and talk and schmooze, you know, and, 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 and exchange views. He said, Shamir is a man I admire. I asked him why he never agreed with you. He said, yes, but he always told me the truth. I always knew where I stand with him because he was upfront and straight. And I knew exactly what he says and what he means. And uh, then one time Baker came to uh, visit and just about when he was to enter the office of Shamir, he got the message that his mother died. And so he entered to the room of Shamir and he said, at that time Shamir was a retired prime minister and James Baker was a retired secretary of state. It was years later. So Baker said to Shamir, uh, I, uh, I uh, have to leave, unfortunately my mother died. And he left. Uh, half a year later, he came to visit again. And we met 
and he said to me, you know, Shamir is an extraordinary person. Do you believe it? He said that one day I got a parcel sent to me from Israel and I opened it and there was a big plaque and it said 94 trees were planted on the Judean hills in memory of Mrs. Baker, the mother of the former Secretary of State of the United States of America. And he looked at me with tears in his eyes and he said to me, Yitzhak Shamir planted 94 trees. His mother died at the age of 94. In memory of my mother in the Judean hills overlooking the city of Jerusalem. What greater honor could she have than this? So, you know, it's very interesting sometimes how personal relations become of great significance. But it happened after both of them were retired already. Today, the Shuk Machane Yehuda in Jerusalem is quite upscale and trendy. What was it like when you first took office as mayor of Jerusalem? Uh, what policies funny. What policies did you initiate to revitalize the shuk, and how does that it was make funny, it? And I assembled all the uh, the uh, the uh, guys working there and the owners of all these uh, uh, you know stores in the uh, market, and I said to them, "We have to refurbish." and to rebuild it. And they were crazy, they wanted to kill me. But it, because the works, of course, affected the business. But afterwards, it became so popular that they were very grateful. And I think to this day, it's uh, entirely different from what it used to be. It's more comfortable, more convenient, more spacious. All the sewage systems that didn't operate were now fixed in a way that makes their lives and the uh, buyers who come to the market uh, much nicer and, and simpler and more pleasant. As we, as we bring our dialogue today to a close, um, I'm your host, Ari Barbalat, on the New Books in Israel Studies podcast. I've been honored to be talking again to former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, Today, our conversation has focused on aspects of his political career before he was prime minister. All of our listeners are invited to learn more by reading his book, Searching for Peace, a memoir published by Brookings Institution Press. Thank you very much. I'm very grateful. Thank you very much, Ari. I enjoyed talking to you.